Broadcasting live from the Business Radio X studios in Atlanta, Georgia, it's time for Atlanta Business Radio, spotlighting the city's best businesses and the people who lead them. Good morning and welcome to Tech Talk. Hope everyone's having a good day. As always, we've got three great Atlanta-based companies to talk to today. First, uh, we're going to chat with John Foshi, co-founder and chief marketing officer at My Porter. Thanks for having me, Joey. Absolutely. Uh, and then we've got Fred McGill, founder and CEO of Simple Showing. Hey, you guys. Great to be here. And finally, founder and CEO Jesse Lindsley of Thrust Interactive. Howdy. Uh, it is, I, I certainly didn't stack the deck this way, but of course we, we do have two real estate technology companies on this show, which, um, given what I do every day, uh, will be an interesting conversation. Okay. So as always, alphabetically, we're going to start with my Porter. John, how are we? Uh, doing well, Joey. Excellent. Okay. So, so let's start with, uh, the, the recent news. You guys made it into Venture Atlanta. We did. We did. Uh, we were excited to be selected as one of 36 companies. There were over 500 applications uh, throughout the Southeast. So uh, we certainly like the vote of confidence. Good. Okay. So before we get into that too much, let's back up and talk about what My Porter does. Sure. So uh, we're disintermediating the $40 billion storage industry. So uh, instead of getting out in the hot sun with your brother-in-law and moving your stuff into a self-storage facility, we come to you with trucks, with movers, and we organize it online. So everything's photographed, barcoded, and you know, pursuant to kind of our need for having things on demand, you go online and choose what you want back and we'll have it at your door. Okay, so you know, it seems like I can't go a day without driving down a street and there's a new self-storage facility popping up. So are is my porter a competitor of those self-storage facilities? Absolutely. Okay. <laughs> Uh, I, I like I like the confidence there. Um, I, I also, of course, love the uh, the disintermediation term. That's uh, one you you've used often, I'm sure. Yeah, it's a vocab word. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> one of those SAT words. Um, okay, so in if I were to go and use a normal self storage facility, I've got to rent a truck or a van. If I don't have one, I have to bring all my stuff myself, and mm-hmm. you know, I open a big you know garage door and put everything in there. And then if I want to go get it again, you know, because we realize well, we need that, you know leaf in the kitchen table because we're having a bunch of people over, then I've got to go out and do it all over again. That's exactly right. And, you know, the big thing I want to communicate is that this is an industry that hasn't really changed its core model in over 70 years. Uh, I've got one of two options. I'm having to coordinate between a few different parties, the facility, uh, the moving company. If I'm the DIY type, you know, going to Lowe's and Home Depot, right, getting all my materials, Hiring a U-Hauler again, right? Getting family and friends out there to try and help me, which, uh, no matter how much they love you, can sometimes be a little bit, a little difficult. Um, and then you hit it spot on, which is, uh, three months later, hey, honey, is that thing, uh, that I want? Is it in the attic? Is it in the facility? Is it over at grandma's house? Right? No one knows. And the only way to know is to go to the facility and wade through, uh, you know, a shoulder high, uh, you know, set of materials to try and find what you're looking for. Okay. So yes. And that sounds like a pain, which is why I have, um, uh, been very hesitant on my, you know, my wife's, uh, you know, pushing to get a self storage facility because I don't want to deal with all that stuff. Yep. So if I was to use my porter, how would it work? Sure. So, uh, you call in, you'd kind of give us the details of your project. Uh, we have, uh, some very highly experienced sort of consultants who are going to help you figure out uh, what are your requirements, uh, what's going to be the best you know, way of doing this and the most cost effective, 
And from there, uh, we schedule your date. Our guys are in and out of your house typically in less than an hour. And within 24 hours, you're going to have an online inventory of everything that you have. Um, give us about 12 to 24 hours notice, and we'll have it back at your doorstep at a time frame that you select. So, you, so you've got your own facility that you're storing everyone's items in. The difference is that I can actually go online and say, hey, wait, did we put the stroller in that facility or is it just at someone's house? I can actually go and look at a picture of what items are in your facility. That's right. And you can also plan your day around this. You can say, I would like it back to my house tomorrow morning between 8 and 9 a.m., right? And so that allows you to um, you know, do fo- focus more on the things that matter, right? Yeah. Like hang out with your kid instead of going to the facility for four hours and getting back in time for lunch. And and similarly, is it, you know, look, when you go around a normal self-storage facility, you pay a monthly rent. Is it a similar monthly fee, but more of a, you know, a, a service fee with you guys? It's a similar monthly fee, but I want to talk about two things. Sure. Uh, one, uh, we believe in transparency. So one of the, you know, gotchas right in the self storage industry is that they'll lure you in with a, you know, uh, proposal of a first month free, right? Or an extremely low starting off price. But two or three months later, you're going to get a letter in the mail saying price is going up, right? 10%. And they're betting that the, uh, inertia, right? Of you having to get the things out, right? Hire movers again get a U-Haul again is going to be enough to prevent you from getting out. And so we talk to people all the time that have had been in there for three or four years and they're paying 5X, even 10X what they thought they were going to pay at the beginning. We don't do that. Your rate is locked in with us in perpetuity. It never, ever changes. That is very interesting, right? I mean, because look, at the end of the day, this is a, this is a subset of the real estate industry. Um, rent increases, um, are, you know, not just common. It's uh, a given. In, in any sort of real estate asset. Um, you know, what you're describing is more of, I mean, it's more of a software as a service type model, really. That's, I mean, in, in a real estate asset. That's, that's exactly right. Yeah. And because of the way we use our, uh, you know, industrial facilities and the efficiency, right, that we can get out of them, we can afford to forego those rent increases. Um, and we know that that's what the customer wants. Well, and of course, look at you, um, you know, you've, you've invested whatever you've invested into your facility. You know what, you know, your, your rent payments are going to be. And so you're able to plan your costs and thus plan what it makes sense for a customer to pay for, you know, my porter to also survive as well. That's, that's exactly correct. Yeah. Um, you know, if we need to raise prices in the future, it'll be for new customers, mm-hmm. but, uh, older customers will, you know, always receive their rate, uh, no matter what. Okay, so as you said, this is an industry that hasn't changed in years. It is also an extremely well-funded institutionalized industry. There are massive REITs that are working in this industry that have uh, tons of experience just all over the country. So what what gives you and your team uh, the, let's see, what do we call it? Ambition, audacity, chutzpah, whatever, whatever you want to call it, that you can go up against these guys? Sure. Uh, you know, I wouldn't be surprised to see them maybe enter the space at some point, but you have to understand the fundamental difference between their model, which is uh, real estate, four walls. I have a single manager checking stuff in, checking stuff out, selling you a lock, and that's kind of the the model, right? So, uh, you know, uh, overhead is low. Um, there's no logistics involved. We are fundamentally a logistics and technology company. We have, you know, 
10 to 12 trucks, maybe even 15 some days out into uh, the field, right? Running all over Atlanta, bringing things to and from. And we're also managing that through technology to give people the transparency that they need to get things in and out. So it would take a fundamental business model rework or, you know, more likely probably some sort of acquisition for some of the REITs to get into this space. You also have to think too that, uh, the REITs have invested a tremendous amount of capital, right? And into these, uh, facilities, right? Located in cities. And so to offer something like this would be to cannibalize their own, uh, investment. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, they'd have to throw in the, uh, logistics piece, which is, you know, gonna lower those, you know, sweet margins that, 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 that they really love. Um, so, okay. So all of that definitely makes sense. Um, uh, you, you touched on something that I'd like to explore a little bit further, um, cities. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, and you know, typically when I used to see self storage facilities, you know, you'd see them in, you know, kind of large suburban or exurban areas. And now ever more increasingly, you are seeing them pop up really right in the heart of the city. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and this doesn't just go for Atlanta. This goes for any major metropolitan area. And so I'm curious to hear your thoughts about the trend of, um, increased urbanization, you know, not just within the United States, of course, across the world, and what sort of opportunity that presents for someone in the self-storage industry. Absolutely. You hit on, you hit the nail on the head. And there's, you know, there's that trend and probably one other one that I would attribute to the reason for my Porter to even exist. And the first one, which you mentioned is urbanization. Um, you know, right now people, millennials, right, are moving to dense urban cores. Um, and it's causing attention or tension between, uh, you know, activists, people who care about urban planning and zoning and the development, uh, right companies who are trying to put these, um, self storage facilities in the middle of places where people actually live. So in suburbia, you have less of an issue because you can take land that, you know, might not be earmarked for, you know, um, some other kind of development. There was recently a very high profile spat between, uh, the Beltline, the agency that runs the Beltline and a, uh, agency who wanted to put a self-storage facility near it. And their argument was, um, why would we devote an entire city block to space that is essentially dead space, right? It, which could be used for a daycare, it could be used for a restaurant, it could be used for something for the residents to actually use. And we see those fights happening increasingly across the country in Atlanta. And it's why the My Porter model makes so much sense, because we don't have to have the space directly where you are living, we come to your living room and bring it to our space. Well, right now, the self-storage model is essentially the retail model, where you go to where the consumer is. Mm-hmm. And, and let's be honest, right? A self-storage facility, regardless of whether it's on the Beltline, it can just be, you know, look, whether it's on a major thoroughfare like a, a Peachtree, a Piedmont, or Monroe, whatever it is, that's not the highest and best use of that land. Exactly. Far and away. Um, but – in the old model, you have to be near people. For you guys, you can go and have you know a, a big industrial warehouse out where big industrial warehouses are. It doesn't matter for the consumer because they're not going there. Exactly, like you say, it's been a location, location, location. Yeah, right? it's been a, it's been a real estate kind of play, and uh, increasingly, uh, customers care less and less about that. You know, with the rise of the on-demand model, which is kind of that second uh, big trend that we talked about. Uh, with people starting starting to prefer that, right? They need it less uh, close to them, but they need it when they need it at a certain time, right? right? That makes uh, that makes the my Porter model 
very attractive. Well, what what is interesting to me about this, and this is a whole other tangent that we're we're not don't have time to get down, but this is what what I feel like might happen when uh, we get to the point where we actually have self driving cars, and what happens to parking lots, or excuse me, not parking lots, parking decks, because really right now parking decks are a terrible use of land on the most valuable land in our cities, right? And of course, we need them to be nearby because you want your car nearby the apartment or the restaurant that you go to. But if we get to the point where we have, you know, fully autonomous vehicles that can, you know, drop us off, well, what's the point of having a parking deck right at the middle of, you know, 14th and Peachtree when that car could go park itself somewhere far outside the city and come back and get me when I need it to? Yeah, I think that's right. Um, we've, we've, we've heard that argument. We've talked about, you know, what people speculating what those parking lots are going to be turned into. Um, I think given their location, it's likely to be more of a, uh, you know, restaurant, retail, um, potentially even li- living space. Um, the core issue for why people use us, which is convenience, right, remains unchanged. Yeah. You know, whether my, uh, Couches in a, a parking deck three blocks away or a self-storage facility three blocks away, the value proposition is still the same. Absolutely. Okay, so so let's get back to what we touched upon at the beginning, which is Venture Atlanta. And, and this kind of goes to one aspect that I think is very important to discuss on the show, which is why are you in Atlanta? Why is this company starting and growing and establishing itself in Atlanta? And that kind of goes hand in hand with the success of Venture Atlanta over the past couple of years and what it has meant to companies in the Southeast. Sure. A- absolutely. You know, first and foremost, all three founders were from the South. That right? helps. So it, that does help. But secondly, right, there's stat after stat of uh, cities uh, in the Midwest and Northeast uh, shrinking and losing citizens to, you know, fast-growing metros in the South. Uh, Atlanta, right, is the premier city, right, of the Southeast. Um, it's adding 70 to 80,000 people every year. Um, from a self-storage pricing perspective, that's really great. You know, when demand tends to outstrip supply, we know, we know what happens. Um, and the venture scene, right, in Atlanta, I mean, Silicon Valley gets a lot of the hype, but, you know, through Venture Atlanta and through other organizations like Carezio and others, uh, there's some substantial capital to be raised here in the Southeast. And discerning consumers who want high-end services that, you know, may have originally started out in New York, but, you know, there's no reason why we can't have, you know, anything like that in Atlanta as well. Yeah. I think we really are entering kind of a, let's call it the past decade, I think, has been a a big inflection point, um, you know, for this city's, not just our status on the national scene and even the world stage. You know, I know that we, we hype ourselves up and we save the world, that we save the world's biggest airport, um, you know, I think we're starting to say other things now because that's not the only thing we have. It, it, <laughs> it can't be the only thing that sustains us. Um, but the fact that you see such a draw from Venture Atlanta, and this is not just a Southeast thing. This is, you know, these are investors coming from all over the country to see companies that have been chosen for this prestigious um, conference that really hasn't been around for that long. It's, it's pretty amazing how quickly it's gotten traction. Yeah, I think they've only been around for about a decade, yeah. but they've um, funded about four point three billion billion with a B uh, in venture funding. You know, in those short ten years. Yeah. Um, and the organizers were reflecting. You know, the other day they were having to harass right people to apply right in years one and two. You know, hey, this is a thing. We will have investors. <laughs> we promise we'll have people that want to invest capital. And at this point, it's you know everyone's competing to get a ticket in the door. Yeah. 
um, it's been a it's really been mirrored by what you said, kind of the growth in Atlanta. Uh, Venture has kind of been on the same exact tra- trajectory. So we've been really honored to be selected, and you know they've been really really easy to work with. That's fantastic. Um, if anyone wants to come see you at that event, uh, when when is it? Uh, October sixteenth and seventeenth. Uh, it's actually a two day event. Uh, presentations will be split out over the two days. There will be, you know, hundreds of investors, institutional funds, as well as companies there. Um, it's also bifurcated into two sets of companies. There's the 36 that are presenting on the main stage and are kind of post revenue, a little more established, looking for that series A, series B. And then there's also a lot of companies that are, you know, what you call pre revenue, right? They're, uh, been identified as having great concepts. They may just be getting off the ground, but they'll also be there, uh, presenting kind of booths, kind of a conference style, a conference style format. So, um, you know, you could be looking for something more established or maybe the next big thing before it, before it, before it comes out. Yeah. And, and, and speaking of those rounds, so you, you guys recently raised, um, around a couple of months ago, and I would imagine are probably on track to do a larger one in the near future. Um, what, what are your plans for anything outside of Atlanta? Uh, sure. So, uh, keeping with the Southeastern theme, you know, I think our expansion strategy is to, uh, stay in the region, right? First before expanding, you know, further abroad. Um, so, you know, you're looking, you know, in other fast growing Southern cities, Nashville, Charlotte, Tampa, Miami. I don't want to tip our hand, uh, too, too much, yeah. but, uh, we've got our, we've got our eyes, uh, definitely to Atlanta and beyond, uh, as well as kind of blowing out what we have in our current offerings. So, I mean, we've got a couple thousand five star reviews across all the rating services. So we know the market likes it. The market wants it. You know, it's been validated. So we feel confident in seeking funding to take it elsewhere. Well, and we, we've been talking a lot about how this applies to consumers. But I think an important piece of your business um, to discuss is how this applies to corporates as well. That's a, that's a really great point. Um, you know, we really thought there was some potential for corporate, but um, we really to date, you know, as a percentage of kind of resources or time attention have not put a lot of, uh, you know, effort towards the corporate setting. And yet they're finding us organically, uh, thinking, can this work for my business? Um, we have probably 10 to 15 businesses that do business in Atlanta, but mm-hmm. are not headquartered here that rely on us to be their logistics partner. Um, we've got small businesses in Atlanta, which again, can't afford to do 3PL. They can't afford to do larger logistics, but hey, we're a startup. Uh, we can offer, you know, space and we're unlike most technology companies. We bring real physical assets to bear, right? We have a workforce. We have trucks. We have technology and logistics know-how. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, being able to serve corporate is something that we're focusing on for the rest of this year and next. So. Do you see that offering as almost like a an Airbnb model for storage, right? You have excess space in your warehouse. You have a small company that maybe isn't big enough to go to a 3PL. They don't need it, you know, forever. And so they come to you and say, hey, can we use a little bit of excess space? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. A- absolutely. So it's it's the space and it's also, hey, we're a 10 to 15, you know, person team. Uh, we don't have a 26 foot box truck and a team of right. people who know how to move stuff in a professional manner. Um, and so that full sort of end to end value prop of not just the space, but also the getting it to and from right safely and securely. That's, 
that, that that's the big driver. So this could be a company, let's say, you know, and this happens all the time in my industry, right? You know, someone is making a move to a new office and they either don't know if they're going to keep all their furniture. Um, they might not need it for a little while because they're in transition. And so, you know, we always have to figure out well, what, what do you do with it before you take it to your new space? Yeah, there's a, uh, there's a great example of, uh, a demolition company actually called us yesterday, uh, saying we're about to, uh, take down a eight story building and all the appliances have to go in storage. We don't know what we're going to do with them, right? We may sell them. We may put them in a different building. Uh, that's one example, but just the moving example that you described just now, um, right? There's often kind of a need. We've got to do it and we've got to do it now. And, yeah. you know, we'll figure out the plan for what happens later. So we're, we're a great resource for that. And that, that's, that's very cool. Um, it says a lot that people are finding it without really much uh, effort put towards outbound marketing. Yeah, no, it, it, exactly. Um, same with the B2B Salesforce. We don't, don't have someone currently focusing on B2B only. That, that person will be joining the organization, uh, very, very soon. But, um, it's, uh, it's, it's really exciting. Uh, we were discovering, you know, users and use cases for this business that mm-hmm. we never actually, uh, conceived of when the actual business got off the ground. That's fantastic. Um, well, look, that is that is all very exciting, and uh, hopefully, uh, some folks listening to this who have uh, hesitated to pull the trigger on uh, self storage, um, if they want to learn more about you and how to work with you, where can they find you? Uh, you can call us at four zero four five four nine five one zero six. Or email us at sales at myporter.com, or we're obviously available on the web. So just check us out. Great. All right, John, thanks for coming on. Thanks. Appreciate it, Joey. Okay, more more disintermediation in the real estate industry. We've got Fred McGill with Simple Showing. Yes, sir. Let's disintermediate those agents. <laughs> so kidding. this, uh, I, I think your subject matter might be one that some of our listeners are a little bit more um, in tune with just because we hear – I think so much about this with companies like Open Door and Zillow. And obviously mm-hmm. we want to get into exactly how you're different and what you do. But, you know, this has the real estate industry is a very old one. Um, it is one that I think lends itself to, um, look, it's a physical asset. And I think those involved with it tend to be very comfortable with that physicality and probably not so attuned to technology. Yes. And so I think that's probably why you see so much money finally being poured in to um, companies like my Porter and like uh, uh, simple showing is that there's a real need for this. It just, it's taken too long. Yeah. It's literally the, the venture scene in real estate was non-existent even just four or five years ago. Yeah. No one cared about it. No one was pouring any money into it. And uh, you mentioned open door. I mean, once they hit that big round and I think we work helped a little bit just from an awareness standpoint, mm-hmm. more commercial real estate, but now it's really starting to sort of catch fire and there's, it's kind of good and bad, right? There's people like us that are more regional online brokerages, similar to us that are popping up everywhere, whether that be, you know, Dallas or LA or uh, Philadelphia. I think that's actually good for us. It helps provide this sort of, you know, concept to consumers. You don't have to use traditional agents and it's starting to, uh, it's sort of starting to catch on, you know, people don't like to take risks with their home, mm-hmm. but now that they see that there's sort of trustworthy, you know, uh, tech-enabled brokerages that do what we do, people are starting to get more comfortable with it. But just to clarify, we do not completely want to disintermediate the agent, although I will describe in a second how there are certain situations why we 
do want to do that, um, but only for sort of a sliver of the use cases. Well, well, let's get into that. I think, um, look, every, everyone listening to this, whether they bought a house or not, is probably pretty familiar with the process right now of getting an agent, going out, looking at houses, making offers, and buying a house, right? Mm-hmm. You know, on, on the surface, pretty simple. But it hasn't changed in a long time. And so let's talk about the business model and why there's a need for what you're doing. Yeah. Well, so at a high level, we are a online real estate brokerage, um, but we're also a platform that allows consumers to book showings, home showings on demand with or without a real estate agent. And so we will actually refund half of the ordinary commission back to the buyer, sort of as a reward for finding the home on their own. So <laughs> the sort of the stat that we hung our hat on is that about 73% of consumers nowadays will find the home they ultimately buy by themselves. In other words, they're sort of shopping by themselves, right? You know, using Zillow or Truly or whatever. Um, but then, you know, ultimately they're sort of like stuck, right? So they're, they, they may find the house or find a, a handful of homes. And, um, there's really no path to take other than, than basically hiring a real estate agent in order to access that home. So um, that's where we sort of capture them is uh, sort of towards the bottom of the funnel, so to speak, and when they're ready to actually purchase the home. And um, and we, we, we let them in. Uh, we send agents to actually meet them. So they're actually full-service licensed agents that will meet them in the home. And then we'll help them put in the offer and negotiate the, the, the price, all the same things that a typical agent would do. Um, there are some variations to that. I will, I will say that, that I have some brokerages, um, upset with this, but, um, but by and large, that's what we do on the buy side. And then we also work with sellers as well. So we quickly discovered in the beginning that we were working primarily with buyers and a lot of these folks were saying, this is cool. We want to work with you guys to buy our home, but we got to sell our current house first. And so we sort of quickly, um, I uh, wouldn't say pivoted, but we sort of started to offer some services to sellers as well. And so we do a 1% fixed fee model. So rather than three that ordinarily would be charged, we okay. charge a 1%. Um, and so, for example, just to put that in hard numbers, if you're selling a $400,000 home, you ordinarily would, would pay your listing agent 12 k And then you're going to pay the buyer's agent 12 k so $24,000 in commissions. We charge them 1%, so 4000 bucks. Um, and then, and then of course, if, if there's another agent that, that shows their home, you know, from Keller Williams or whoever, you, you are on the hook to sort of pay those people too. So 4% total versus six, um, on the selling side. Okay. So, so let's take that example of when the, you are refunding a commission to a buyer. Mm-hmm. So does that mean that the seller of the home is paying simple showing that 3% buyer's commission and you're cutting that in half and giving part of it to the buyer? If so, well, there's sort of two use cases, right? If the home is listed with uh, a big brokerage like mm-hmm. a Cobble Banker or a Keller Williams, someone like that, and we then show that property uh, to one of our buyers, then that that uh, seller is going to pay us three percent. So mm-hmm. we we sort of you know monetize at the point of closing, but then we just turn right back around and either use that one point five percent, which is half the commission, to to pay down their closing costs or we, we sometimes actually write a physical check and just hand it them at closing. It's sort of either way. Um, a lot of first time buyers, they, um, you know, there's, and this is sort of like why our our model is, is emerging, right? Because a lot of millennials are, uh, you know, they're sort of cash strapped, right? They still have a lot of uh, student bills. Right. And so it's tough to clear out your entire bank account to buy a home. And, um, particularly increasingly more difficult in Atlanta in the city because, the home prices have, have uh, gone through the roof the last five years. But so we help 
you know, sort of diminish that cost, that overhead to, to initially put the down payment uh, for buying the home. Interesting. Yeah. Well, and look, at the end of the day, and look, I remember going through this process, right? You, you find homes that you want to buy. You, you know, you call your agent and you say, uh, you know, can we see them at this time? They say, well, no, you know, I'm not available this time or, mm-hmm. you know, someone has to let us in. And um, it you're in the home for what, 10 minutes at the most? That's right. Yeah. It's, you it's, can't go do it yourself? Bizarre. Well, that was one of the the questions that we posed two and a half years ago when we started. It's, it's sort of like this. Um, it was like an aha moment for me. This is right on the heels of starting the company. It was I was in a, in Boston for a, a conference, and I stayed at an Airbnb. I wasn't with the company yet, but um, worked for another startup, and we didn't have any money to like stay at the Hyatt or anything. So we, uh, you know, I was like, let me let me see if I can find an Airbnb, and it was you know a fraction of the cost of the hotel, but it was my first Airbnb experience. It was three years ago, and I literally slept like there was the guy that owned the house, right? In one bedroom. And then I'm like in the one beside him and I don't know the dude, of course. And, um, he didn't kill me. You know, <laughs> I woke up the next morning. I was fine. Yeah. And, uh, I didn't rob the place. So it was completely safe and all vetted through an Airbnb platform that's widely adopted now. Um, and so it begs a question, right? Like, why can you sleep in someone's home overnight or for multiple days? that you don't know, but yet you can't walk through their home, which on average is showing takes 14 minutes. How come I can't just walk through someone's house without an agent attached by my side? Absolutely. Um, well, and really, is that the best use of that agent's time? No. Absolutely not. Well, and 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 that's that's another whole uh, separate uh, wrinkle, right? Because agents are not that busy. They don't, they're not very productive. And um, they're working just a small amount of deals. And so they actually don't have much going on. So they can actually go out on showings, but... Uh, at least the ones that aren't that good, the ones that are busy don't have time to do it. So yeah, it, it's just a, it's sort of a waste of everyone's time. And, um, and, and so, and also it's, it's very cumbersome just to coordinate the showing, right? Cause there's four parties involved. There's, uh, and the old fashioned way is there's the buyer. And then you tell your buyer's agent when you want to go to the house and the buyer's agent calls the seller's agent and the seller's agent asks the seller, can we do Saturday at three? Well, unfortunately they've got a, you know, they got a kid's birthday party at two thirty, So that's a no. And so they come back with a negotiation of how about either one o'clock or five. And then that gets circled all the way back to the buyer when they can't actually do, then they got to move it to Sunday. So it's just like a back and forth. It's like a it's, 10, 10 email thread before it's, you're done. It's a disaster. Yeah. Um, so, but, but particularly if you're seeing 20 homes, right. And you're doing another course of several weekends. So we, we sort of fixed that. That was the first thing we fixed. Um, and, and so our evolution in terms of our product roadmap is so we did that, which is basically people just book a day at a time. We are connected to the MLS, uh, five different multiple listing services uh, in Miami, Tampa, Orlando, and Atlanta, and uh, Atlanta being our core market. And basically, once they click submit to view that home at three o'clock, it uh, fires off a text to the listing agent to say, "Is three o'clock okay?" Uh, of course, we don't have all the sellers' email addresses or cell phones, so we can't we can't message them. But basically, it connects to the listing um, agent and sort of just cuts one person out of the equation and makes it a lot more efficient. Mm-hmm. So that was the first thing we started with. But now we're moving more towards uh, we're excited about, uh, which is called unassisted showings, which is basically um, letting people inside homes with no agent attached to your hip. And it. To your point earlier, you know, there, there's not a lot of need sometimes for agents, but also, you know, when you're in there, it, you you would be baffled by the fact of uh, the the questions that are asked are, are ridiculous. Which is, you know, it's things that you would already know, right? You walk into the house, and what are you going to ask? Like, what 
are these countertops granite? Well, yeah, look, you can just see right now they're granite, right? Like, is the backyard big? Let me just peek out the window. You don't need the agent to tell you these things, you know? It's just they're obvious things uh, that do not require someone with you. Um, and, and, all, and also a lot of people say that, hey, look, it's, it's actually more comfortable if I'm with my wife and I'm, I'm cruising through the home by myself and I can have that sense of privacy and... Uh, you know, so, so at any rate, so our next evolution is these unassisted showings, which is basically us putting a lockbox on our listing, uh, digital lockbox with a hash, which is sort of like, uh, basically a piece of JavaScript that, that tells the, the lockbox when to open or when it can open, uh, based on the issuance of a pin. And so the buyer has a certain window that they can enter inside that home. And, and it's all vetted through, uh, we use a third party tool called Checker, which is the same tool that Uber uses to do background checks. And then, um, a third party identification company, uh, that's basically a, a live, uh, a selfie live detection, which you take a selfie to make sure you're alive and you're a human. And then you snap your, your ID, your, uh, driver's license, make sure you're the same person that you took a picture of. And, um, and basically that person is now, uh, verified. This is a similar process of Airbnb. Mm-hmm. Actually, we go a step beyond what they do with the, with the selfie. But, uh, and then, and then the person can enter the home. And so we're doing this with vacant properties right now. So, um, you can just go inside any of the listings that we have that are vacant that have our lockbox. And, and sort of the goal there is to, um, is to actually disintermediate the buyer's agent in those situations. Um, and in that, in that scenario, the seller is not paying the buyer's agent that 3% because there's not one. Mm-hmm. So that's the goal. So they pay just our 1% fee and, uh, and avoid the buyer's agent fee altogether. So uh, there, there's a trend. And look, this, this is from experience buying a home. And I, I would imagine that some people have had similar ones. And I'd like to get your thoughts on if this is a reality that you've seen. Um, and is it an opportunity for simple showing? So what I have noticed about residential real estate is that you have two parties coming together to do a transaction who are never going to see each other again. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, you know, in, in the commercial world, you have, Tenants and landlords and buyers and owners who, you know, these are institutions that are probably going to do business again at some point. Or even if they're not, um, word of their misbehavior, should they put that out there, is going to get around, sure. right, and have consequences. And so, look, obviously, yes, there's look, there's bad people and bad businesses. But at the end of the day, there is some reputational stake, at least I, I've seen in the commercial world. Mm-hmm. Residential world, nothing like that because, you know, wash our hands. We're never going to see each other. Who cares, okay? Yeah. And so I'm curious how you think that that plays into – is that an opportunity for technology to help when you have those human dynamics that can – come and, you know, kind of get in the way of a deal? I think so. I mean, it it's shocking how often agents actually will pre- prevent a deal from happening or slow it down uh, purely because they get frustrated with the other agent or let their, you know, uh, their pride or ego <laughs> get in, you know, uh, get the best of them, right? And, um, and there's always this, this sort of, you know, this infighting, this bickering between agents. And it, it really sort of... Um, it really begs the question of like, why wouldn't there just be an open marketplace where buyers, home, home buyers and home sellers could just connect with one another and there's no intermediary. I don't think that that's realistic in you know, in the near term, uh, unfortunately, I think agents uh, are not going to go extinct anytime soon. But um, if you point to other developed markets in Europe, for example, mm-hmm. there is a single agent and it's, that's the listing side. So there's one agent that helps the person that's selling the home. And then, 
they actually go out and, and quote unquote market that home or sell that home. Right. And then, and they're on the hook to bring in a buyer, bring in a consumer. Um, but in the U S you know, they're, you know, we've got to, we've got to have someone apparently represent the buyer too, which is nonsense we think. Um, but yeah, the, the open market concept is what we would love to see eventually. I think it does make sense. Obviously you mentioned open door. That's exactly what they're doing. They're just selling directly. They're just taking the, home you know, with their capital and then reselling it. Um, and there's only one agent involved. So I think there's a big opportunity for that. It's just going to take a long time to get there. Well, you, you, you think that people are ready to make that big of a purchase online? I think so. I think there's been an evolution, right? Where, you know, we had uh, people buying books with the Amazon, the advent of Amazon, where they're going to bookstores and then they started buying bigger things. Um, like uh, groceries, you know, a little more personalized. And then um, the next evolution has been Carvana and buying your, your car, right? And so I do think that there is going to be a uh, use case for buying residential property. I just think that it will be slightly different than, than you know, buying groceries. You know, it's right. going to be obviously much more complex. And there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of um, pieces that are, there's a there's sort of confluence of uh, various factors that are, uh, coming together at the right time to create this sort of perfect dynamic. And one of those is, um, of course, the, the advent of the mobile era and all these, you know, the availability of, of excellent data on your, on your phone, um, property values, things of that nature. Um, but now there's also a lot of digital tools that's helping the mortgage process and the escrow process that didn't exist even three years ago. And so you're always sort of relying on this very manual, uh, you know, workflow of getting the title, uh, abstract completed the, the title search and, and, uh, getting prepped for closing and, um, and your, your closing disclosure statements, all those things is super manual. And now there's just a lot of startups that are doing online digital notaries and you can sign everything online. Now you don't actually have to physically go into the attorney's office to close in your home. So there's a lot of cool things that are happening that are now, it's all these things that had to happen first before you could actually buy a home online. And those things are finally sort of coming to fruition. Well, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned the mortgage piece because I wanted to talk about that. Um, look, obviously, people are much more comfortable buying services and goods online than they ever were before. The difference between all those others, except for maybe the car, is that there are very few among us who are going to pay straight up cash for a house. And so, you know, for those that would traditionally use potentially their agent as an advice on, you know, where would I go to look for a mortgage and what that process looks like? Do you see a place for simple showing to help um, a buyer out on that front as well? Yes, that uh, excellent insight there. Um, so that is a big part of where we're headed. Um, we actually announced on the show, we just closed our first uh, round of funding. Well, we, we'd raised a little bit of money um, under a, a convertible note, but we just closed a million dollar round this week, actually, which is going to largely be put towards uh, dev, obviously, and, uh, you know, our product roadmap, but also in mortgage. And the reason why is because we sort of stumbled upon this. It wasn't by design, but a lot of the showings that we would have booked through our through our app, people would, uh, of course, come in, find a home, book a day and a time to see a home. And we started discovering that a lot of these folks uh, it was actually kind of problematic in the beginning. We were kind of scared because they all told us they didn't have a pre-approval letter. Not all of them, but literally three quarters of them. And we kind of got a little bit nervous because they're like, oh, man, we're we're showing houses to all these people that can't get a loan or that have maybe no ability to get a loan or intention to get a loan. And so, uh, you know, potentially a waste of time. But what we discovered is that most uh, most of our buyers are actually 
responsible humans. They actually can't afford that house. You know, they, they may be like five or 10 grand off, right? They may be shopping for a $350,000 home and really they can only afford three twenty five. no biggie. Um, but they, they didn't go the final leg of getting a pre-approval. And the reason why it's, it makes total sense, it's, it's actually um, because most people don't want to ping their credit. You know, they don't want to go get a yeah. mortgage pre-approval in January when they're not going to buy until July. And of course, everyone t- typically monitors the rates and they're like, oh man, rates are going down. Let me just wait till I get that rate lock. So um, this actually turned out to be a good problem for us because now we have this uh, we have the mind share and then, and then they're, they're connected with us doing showings. I'm like, Hey, well, who do you recommend? And they started asking us, who do you recommend? And in the beginning, we sort of just started sending them to just our, you know, just neighborhood Atlanta based brokers. And now we're starting to really um, build out a, a model for uh, digital pre-approvals and, and also the ability to monetize the spread on that margin for the, uh, the uh, rate. And it could be as upwards of one to one and a half basis points uh, on the loan, which is which would be tremendous to our business downstream, <laughs> and a great opportunity to to build revenue, obviously. But uh, we're very early on that, and we we have no intent to get into the mortgage business, but we do want to be a player and offer that uh, in some capacity, you know, in the in the future. Well, that that is very exciting. Uh, well, everyone, you heard it here first. That that is that's great news, um, and, and and obviously it makes sense, right? If that is a most people cannot buy a home without a mortgage. And so if you're enabling people to uh, more easily buy a home, why not enable them to more easily get a mortgage? Yep, totally. Okay, so if you're listening to this and you're a buyer, seller, all of the above, and want to learn more about Simple Showing, how would you do that? Go to simpleshowing.com or follow us on Twitter or Facebook or hit me up, Fred McGill, uh, on uh, LinkedIn or Twitter or Fred at Simple Showing if you want to email me about your house and you want to buy or sell. Cool. Thanks a lot, Fred. Yep. All right, Jesse, how you doing, man? Doing great. Excellent. Um, so, uh, I, I didn't plan it like this, but you're, you're odd man out here, uh, outside of the real estate industry. It's but, okay. But, it's a, and those are tough acts to follow. Two great companies, two well articulate, uh, gentlemen talking about what they do. I'm impressed. Well, really impressed. you, you have, you trust where you are in a very, uh, you're not in an unsexy industry yourself. We're going to talk That's about true. gaming. That's true. Okay. Yeah. So, um, you are in the gaming industry, and gaming has well not not just nationally, but also in Atlanta over you know the past little while has gotten uh, a lot more you know whatever you want to call it hype, br um, or just status. Totally. Um, but you started thrust long before you know Atlanta in the southeast was kind of a, a gaming center. That's right. So let's talk about the history and talk about what you're doing now. Yeah, so the history, uh, 2004, we started in the online gaming gambling space. So I was a backgammon and dominoes player, and I wanted to be able to play online for money. People could play poker. Uh, friends of mine started an online poker uh, website, and so we launched a game site where you could do that, hosted in Costa Rica, and, and uh, that was a lot of fun. And so we did that until the laws changed, uh, making it illegal to take uh, U.S. players and have a shakeup in the industry. Um, but we wanted to keep the band together. We wanted to keep making games, and, and we uh, pivoted to a services model to keep uh, the dream alive. And, uh, and you know, fast forward 15 years now, we've made about 200 launched, created and launched about 200 games for our, our partner clients. Uh, and, um, and now our, our back 
building some of our own games. And so it's uh, it's been quite a journey. But like you said, there were, I think, uh, under a handful of, of game development uh, companies here in Atlanta. And now there's almost 100, if not more. Uh, and so it's come a long way. We're part of the entertainment tax credit, which has been huge for us reinvesting in what we do and attracting talent and attracting businesses to have their games mm-hmm. designed and developed in Atlanta. So uh, we're, we're on the map. We're not uh, in the top five of game design, game development cities, but uh, we're in the top ten, which is uh, amazing. That 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 is amazing. It's it's really not an industry that you typically think of when you think of Atlanta, and that that's frankly one of the reasons why I like the show because you know most people just kind of hear about our Fortune one thousand companies. They don't hear about all the other amazing things that are things that are happening, and you know it's it's sizable. Um, how has gaming changed in the last fifteen years? Hmm. Well, I think uh, obviously the uh, it used to be thought of as a you know kind of a young uh, a young man's game, if you will, and there were only games for hardcore gamers, uh, and that's really changed. So we make games for the retired uh, you know uh, demographic. We make it. Uh, there's lots of games that we make for the female demographic. Um, so everybody's playing games. There's nobody that doesn't, uh, you know, isn't using their phone or some, playing some sort of game. And so that's where that's where we come in. We kind of, uh, you know, we meet people where they're at. We gamify experiences. We make things more engaging. We we develop, you know, kind of very immersive games as well. But um, I think that's the the biggest piece is that there, it's a uh, you know. It can be just an app that's just fun to use, that's rewarding to use, that, uh, you know, we tap into behavioral design and behavioral economics. Uh, And so for us, I think the phone uh, asynchronous type uh, gameplay has really revolutionized at least what we do. Um, And obviously there's been advances in technology, so, uh, and and Wi-Fi and things like that. So you can do, you know, you can do... Hardcore gaming on your phone, which is, uh, you know, was unthinkable 10 years ago. It, it's, it was always odd to me that gaming got pegged into this kind of young male teens, early 20s type demographic where uh, I, I, I think that is a very narrow view of what games are, right? We've been playing games throughout the entirety of human history, okay? Um, maybe not video games, but everyone plays games to some degree or another, Um and so to just kind of think of it in that narrow band, I think thought was always very, I don't know, lack of imagination, short-sighted, whatever you want to call it. And, and it seems like you guys understand that as well. You're making games for everyone from little kids to retirees. Yeah, that's right. And now uh, with esports, uh, people are watching people play games. And so it is an entertainment field, whether you are a participant or uh, are on the sidelines watching. And that's uh, that's been pretty exciting to watch. So that I'm, I'm glad you touched upon that. And that, to me, has been one of the more stunning developments of the past couple of years. Is this right that the kid who recently won the Fortnite tournament made more money than tiger woods did in the i think the kid made three million and tiger made two is that something like that he it was definitely up there i mean put somebody you know on the map who was just in his you know basement playing games kind of a thing his his parents basement playing games and now uh he can afford to buy his own house a really nice house right (laughs) couple yeah yeah um and he can use simple showing to do it there you go (laughs) um so I, I'm curious about the different types of games that you make because you do commercial games. You also do educational games. Is it a different skill set to, 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 to make those two different types of games? Is it a different mindset or really, you know, you have direction on what to do. It's just about putting in the right inputs. It's the, the same type of talent can do both of those. Yeah, it's definitely the same type of talent. I think you have to have a unique team that gets excited about 
those different challenges. So our team gets excited to use what we call game science to solve problems. And so that problem may be a lack of engagement, that problem may be a lack of education, uh, or it could be quite simply just, uh, you know, a lack of entertainment. So let's make it fun, right? So uh, we look at, uh, you know, when we talk about meeting people where they're at, we want to engage first, whatever that looks like. So maybe that's just entertaining them. And then once you kind of uh, get them, you know, they kind of feel that there's something in it for them, then you can start to engage, then you can start to educate, you can start to empower folks. Uh, and that's what, uh, you know, kind of using our game science for good is, is how we look at it. So speaking of that, you know, you have been the recipient of a number of grants over the past couple of years, right. um, probably most prominently from the NIH um, to make educational games. How did that come about? And, and is, has that, is that becoming a more significant part of your business? So, uh, well, we're big fans of non-dilutive funding. Uh, we're, we're self-funded, so we run a very successful services company. We reinvest. We're, we get a tax credit from a Georgia the Entertainment Tax Credit that we reinvest. Uh, and then writing grants uh, with great research partners has also been a part of our growth strategy. So, um, yeah, so how the, the National Institute of Health grant came about, uh, you know, how you get in healthcare or, or pediatric healthcare, usually there's some sort of story. And so I was, uh, I had my daughter later in life. I uh, found myself at Children's Healthcare of Atlanta with a seven-day-old, a very traumatic experience, uh, but it opened my eyes to what was going on at CHOA, uh, what kids with chronic illnesses are going through. Uh, and so it was that being immersed in that uh, world and meeting wonderful uh, pediatricians. Um, we said we want to be part of this. We, we want to be part of this uh, ecosystem, and we want to be part of the solution. And so we just started working with chronically ill kids who were falling behind in school. And, and so there were different problems that we were trying to hit. Um, and we kind of uncovered that kids really struggle with understanding their body, understanding the disease, which leads to a lack of adherence. And so that, that was four years ago. We're now executing a phase two NIH grant. Uh, and we have both a, an educational game called Hemonauts, where it's part of health literacy, but it's a, the subset, which is disease literacy, where you are a medical nanobot inside of the body, uh, blowing stuff up, having fun. We bury the spinach. Uh, we're tackling, you know, serious subject matter like sickle cell disease and asthma and the flu. Um, but it just feels like fun. And so that's been, that's been super, uh, that just went into beta. We'll do a year of testing with our partners at CHOA and Emory and Georgia Tech. Uh, this is true IRB testing, looking at efficacy. We're in schools, uh, you know, getting 30, 40, 50 kids at a time playing, uh, this game and watching them have fun. And so we'll polish it and grow it over, over the next year. Um, but that led us into uh, developing a condition management uh, program for kids and parents. And uh, so that's also in a pilot. We're piloting with several hospitals, several healthcare systems. Um, and so, uh, yeah, you can see the breadth just that, that there's a, a mobile game that you're playing, blowing stuff up. And then there's another gamified approach to helping kids take their medicine, follow their treatment program. Those are both games to us. Uh, and they're vastly different. That, that's, that's a very in, um, interesting opportunity and one that, I mean, look, we all, we go about our lives and we have, you know, mundane parts of our job. We have parts of our job that we like, but to be able to do that, I would imagine gives another, another level of meaning. To, to what you're doing. That's yeah. very unique. Yeah, totally. I'm, I'm grateful that I love what I do. I'm grateful that I work with a group of folks that want to make a difference and have an impact. And so, um, yeah, very lucky. Um, I, I noticed, uh, I was, of course, doing a little digging before we came in here. And I noticed that you are up for a culture award in Atlanta. Yeah. 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 We take uh, we take that very seriously. Um you know, I'm very much anti-establishment. Um, you know, we want kid, w kids, we want folks who show up to work to be, you know, wearing whatever they want to wear, 
Uh, we used to have an office in the Inman Park that it was dogs and cats and you know, I'd show up in my pajamas and flip flops. And so we went virtual a couple of years ago and that's a great quality of life. And, and so uh, we have an office at ATDC, but, uh, yeah, it's very much, uh, our culture is important, uh, empowering people to uh, do what they want to do. So a lot of people come in through maybe the game design door, the game development door, and they find another opportunity that they want to do inside of the company. And so I love that flexibility. I love people that, that uh, you know, again, see an opportunity and go, this is something that I want to go after. And, and we really empower our team. And that's kind of why we're in the different spaces we're in. We're doing something in golf right now. We're doing something in the celebrity space. This all comes from uh, our employees and, and the, their passions they get to bring to light. And we go out and we find partners that want to solve those problems and we help enable that. Well, and, and, uh, you know, as you said before, you are, you are self-funded and one of the benefits of being your own master is that, uh, you know, you don't have anyone, anyone guiding you or telling you what to do and who to work with. That's a big part of our culture. Yeah. Um, you mentioned that you're at ATDC and we've, of course, had other ATDC companies on this show. What, what has that ecosystem meant for Thrust? You know what? They've really embraced us. Uh, it was uh, exploring – the startup community here has really embraced us. So we went through Flashpoint, a uh, really a great accelerator here in town, and it was after that experience that we uh, we ended up at ATDC. And so it's been four or five years of – uh, as we've been, you know, figuring out how we're going to, you know, take a product to market and, and be, you know, working with, I, I have great support groups, CEO support groups. I have great marketing mentors. I've got great, just, uh, just a, uh, a great network of mentors that I can, uh, I can lean on that care about what we're doing, that are asking questions about how they can help. Um, so I've been thoroughly impressed with, uh, that and I'm very grateful for, uh, being a part of that ecosystem. That's that's always good to hear. I've never asked that question and had anyone give me a uh, less than stellar answer of what what that place has meant. Mm. Um, and and really, I mean, it's 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 of course now becoming what it should be, which is uh, you know kind of a a mecca uh, you know for companies like you in Atlanta, right? I think that probably with the resurgence of Midtown in the past decade or so, it's gotten the publicity that it has always deserved. Yeah. And the other thing that's been impressive is the uh, variety of businesses. So, you know, there's been, there's different hubs uh, in Atlanta that are kind of more um, you know, B2B focused or, or what have you. And uh, for us kind of being somewhere where uh, there's different companies. So we'll find people that have the same target demographic, but in totally different businesses. And that's a huge advantage. Um, that's been huge. Uh, and then they just recently started a health tech vertical, a well-funded health tech vertical, uh, great partners that are looking to pilot uh, those healthcare uh, companies. Uh, and so we've been super excited to be asked to be a part of that. And that's been wildly beneficial. That's fantastic. Uh, well, any, anyone listening to this who wants to either work with you or find out more about your game so they can uh, play them and see what it's all about, how do they find out more? Yeah, the, the website is thrustinteractive.com. Um, our, 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 our new game that's out in beta is called Hemonauts, so that's hemonauts.com. Uh, you can text me at 678-283-1234. Uh, my email is jesse at thrustinteractive. Um, so yeah, Jesse Lindsay on LinkedIn, uh, but I would love to chat with anybody that wants to learn more. Fantastic. And for anyone trying to look you up, your name is spelled with a D in the middle, correct? L-I-N-D-S-L-E-Y. Okay. That's correct. Just, just make sure that no one has any Google mishaps. All right, Jesse, thanks for coming on. Everyone, thank you for coming on. Um, as always, thank you, listener, for listening to Tech Talk. Have a great day.